it's just great to, to be in the presence of God. And uh, so I just, I just want to pray as we, we just come to the Word of God. Fathers, we, we just, just carry on, Lord, in, in your presence. Father, there are different facets of worship um, in terms of what we sing, and, but Lord, so much more. Lord, there's, there's the worship, Lord, of, of just coming to your Word. And Lord, we want to commit that to you, Lord. There's the worship as we step out from your word, Lord, to, be, to not just be those that hear the word of God, but those that do the word of God. And Lord, that's my prayer now. Father, plant your word deep into our hearts that it would shape us and so change us that we would leave this place different by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. By now, if you've been listening to any of the, the little series on James, you will have realized that James is nothing less than challenging, and today is going to be no different. And there's, these huge, there's this huge challenge today followed by a wonderful truth. And as we move into to chapter 2, we sort of pick up where we left off last week at the end of chapter 1, and James gives us more examples of what it means to put our um, our faith into action so that we are doers of the Word of God, not just simply listeners. And James gives us a simple test at the beginning of chapter 2, and he sends two visitors into a church service, into a church situation like this. One of them is rich, the other is poor, and then all he has to do is just to stand back and watch. And the way in which we behave towards other people actually will indicate what we really believe about God. See, you cannot, in fact, you dare not separate human relationships from your divine relationship. So turn with me to James chapter 2. I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. It says this, My brothers and sisters... Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, and then say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor at my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor." Is it not the rich who have exploited you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Stop there for a moment. In 2010, we went on the trip of a lifetime, went over to New Zealand, then on to Australia, and we planned to be there for about three weeks. It actually ended up being four weeks due to the infamous ash cloud, if you remember back that far. Now, we were staying with some friends in Sydney, and we didn't want to overstay our welcome, so we planned a few nights in, the, in, a, in a hotel in the Blue Mountains. 
And my friend very kindly lent me one of his cars, and this car was about 20 years old. It's the sort of car that in this country would have just rusted to pieces. It wouldn't have existed, but due to the mild climate out there, it had managed to, to keep going. And we drove into this rather posh, very nice hotel, and we drove up to the door, and the man came to greet us and says, can I valley park your car? I didn't even really know what valley parking was, to be honest. And so Rachel and I, we looked at each other, and we both thought exactly the same thing. This car has never been valley parked in its life. <laughs> Honestly, I just I felt actually slightly uncomfortable. And so I handed over my keys anyway. He took the car off to, and, and parked it somewhere, somewhere around the corner. And we entered the hotel. The next morning, came down with my little ticket, handed my ticket in for the man to go and get my car again. He, he, he disappears off, and we're standing there just waiting, and then we're waiting a little bit longer, and we watch a nice Aston Martin drives around, followed by a rather, rather expensive-looking Porsche. Still no sign of our old Ford. And then this guy walks around the corner, very, very apologetic, and he says, I'm sorry, sir, but your car won't start. This car is 20 years old. It's the old-fashioned choke, if you remember what those, how those used to work. A bit temperamental to get started, in all honesty. So I said, do you mind if I go around and, and give it a try? So I went around with him and turned the key, and it simply went click. The battery was completely dead. So, to be fair to me, went off and got some jump leads. After about 10 minutes or so, we got this, this car working again. And this man used driving these expensive, these luxury cars, not old bangers like the one that I had arrived in. But I'll tell you this, the way in which he spoke to me, in fact, the way in which he treated me was with just as much respect and with as much courtesy as if I turned up in a Bentley. And it surprised me because I simply wasn't expecting it. And listen, how we treat people, in fact, how we respect, how we judge one another matters to God. See, there, there aren't many things that are more uncomfortable when you walk into a situation and just feel unwelcomed. Have you ever walked into a room and it just goes quiet, and you don't know if it's you or if it's something else? You, you just you feel really uncomfortable at that moment. In fact, we need to be careful that must never happen within church. And, and sometimes the way in which we treat people and welcome people into churches can be exactly the same way as we do within society because money and appearances matter. And this creates a huge problem in the sharing of our faith. In fact, we see people who don't quite fit in, maybe, we, we, maybe they don't dress in the right sort of way, or they just look different to us, and listen, if we make them feel unwelcome, how on earth are they ever going to listen, never mind receive the gospel? And James says, this is a big problem, but it's not just a, a big problem for the people who are being judged, it's perhaps an even bigger problem for your own heart. And we live in a society that rightly thinks that discrimination is wrong, it's bad because it goes against the law, the law of equality. All humans are equal and should be treated as such. However, the Bible doesn't really speak in such terms. It speaks of mercy and it speaks of judgment. In fact, these are much deeper issues, issues actually of our heart. 
When we show discrimination between rich and poor, or for that matter, between anything else, we forget that the kingdom of God is about mercy. And the reality is that all of us will be judged by the Word of God, not by one another. So we need to ask ourselves the question, how can I condemn anybody when I know that I deserved to be condemned as well? James was writing into a Jewish culture that really valued honor and valued recognition and, and money talked. And you know what? Have things really changed? <laughs> I don't think so. In fact, we very much live in the same sort of challenge to today within our culture in which we in which we live, and we celebrate success. The more money you have, the more we think of somebody. That's generally the, the message that this the culture sends out. When we sold our business at the end of last year to commit more time into the work of the church, I tell you what, lots of people didn't understand. How on earth would you give up a business that's doing well for something that you don't even get paid for? It goes against our success-driven culture. Also, we live in a culture where celebrities are just fascinated over. In fact, they're almost worshipped. And this desire and this goal for, for most of us is simply to climb to the top to see how far we can get up the, the, the ladder, whether it be in politics or in industry or, or within society, but also it affects the church. As James writes, he writes to believers who are trying to seize spiritual office and power. And we need to redefine success. We need a new and a biblical understanding. What is success? You notice where James starts in chapter 2. Have a little look. He points us to Jesus. See, Jesus didn't look at outward appearances. He looked at a person's heart. He's not impressed by riches or status. He saw potential in the lives of sinners. Those that other people would simply just write off, He welcomes. And we're more likely to judge people by their past, not by their future. And Jesus spoke to, sinful, to a sinful woman at a well. He, he touched those who were considered by others to be unclean. Even his enemies had to admit that this man, Jesus, will they said about him, you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. And it's all too easy to judge by outward appearances rather than by the inward attitude of our heart. And we say we believe that God has the power to transform lives, but are we really willing to live that out and even to take risks with people to see God's grace in action within other people's lives? We need to follow the example of Jesus. And Jesus was a friend to sinners. You know, even his 12 closest friends, his disciples, were a real motley bunch of people. And it wasn't that Jesus approved of sin or approved of their sin, but he welcomed people. He loved people. He wasn't compromising. He showed compassion. And he saw the potential in people. He saw them as who they could be in God, in Christ. He looked forward, not to their past. He saw them through the lens of grace. But listen, it wasn't just the way in which he viewed people that made him radically different. It was the way, it's the way in which he lived. 
Jesus was despised and rejected. He was never a model for success, at least not in the terms that we would view success. Prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1 to 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one with whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Just at times, he was homeless. He lived in real poverty, yet he was the very glory of God, God dwelling on earth. The religious people judged him by human standards. They rejected him. After all, he came from the wrong town. He went to the wrong school. He had no wealth. They could not see how this man standing in front of them could possibly be the very glory of God in their midst. It's so easy for us to make the same mistake when people walk through the doors perhaps of our church. We make assumptions on how people dress, the color of their skin, their fashion, or any one of 101 other things, and we allow superficial things to carry more weight than the fruit of the Spirit being manifest in a person's life. Instead, we need to look through the eyes of Christ to see people as Jesus sees people. And this the basis of our relationship with others is on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, anything else is not going to work. And we have a glorious King, Jesus. And if you believe in Him, if you put your hope and your trust in, in Him, we are part of the same family. We are together in Christ. In fact, we have brothers and sisters all across this world. In fact, we look around this room at the moment, and there are people from many different backgrounds, and in fact, from even different countries as well. And, and some of us could be described as rich, others as poor. But in family, there, it must be free from discrimination. And James says that if you discriminate, you reveal your evil motives if you judge, you don't only wrong those that you discriminate against, but actually you wrong Jesus. And it's so easy for us to act in this sort of a verse three way without even notices, noticing it. We can overlook certain people. We can ignore them. We can make them almost feel invisible within our church. But you must not show favoritism, and we need to be free from discrimination. And verse 5 is just amazing. It's brilliant. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He promises those who love Him. See, it reverses everything that we would expect to happen, and we must never forget that God can, in fact, God will use the most unlikely of people to carry out His purposes and to bring glory to His name. In fact, God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. The only condition, listen, the only condition that is required to inherit the kingdom of God is to love Him, to love Jesus. So what is biblical success? Perhaps one definition is this, to love Jesus, to love Him. And what does that look like? See, James is very good. In fact, he's very clear, as we heard last week, about making sure that 
if we only live out the Word of God, we haven't really learned it. D.L. Moody describes it as this, every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. God's Word needs to have legs and feet. It needs to be seen in action within our lives. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to ourselves, to reveal to you if there's anyone that you are in the habit of looking down on. You've shown favoritism. You allow God's Spirit just to reveal the truth of our hearts. We perhaps don't even aware of it at this moment. Stop for a moment. Do I treat people equally? And we need to use verse 5 to change our heart attitude. You see, these are people that God has chosen. God's chosen people. You know, God does not have favorites. And the emphasis here is that God does the choosing. In fact, God says, I chose you. You didn't choose, choose me. I chose you. That is what a relationship with God is built on. This is grace in action. He chose you from the very, the most difficult of situations, from the most challenging of places. And while you were far from him, sinner in rebellion against him, he chose you. So that person that you want to avoid, or you want to look down on, is equally chosen by God. And God has saved you completely on the basis of the work of Christ on the cross, and not on anything that you have ever done or actually ever will do. And this offer of salvation is for everyone who will come by faith to Christ. And this is shocking. It really is, if you think about it. In fact, the early Christian Jewish believers in Acts chapter 10 were horrified when Peter went into the, and, and actually ate and, and spoke with the Gentile household of Cornelius. It couldn't get there. Could God really want to welcome these Gentiles? Well, the Holy Spirit said, yes. And in God's eyes, there is no difference between nationalities, between social status, or between anything else. We are all equal. We are chosen by a loving God. And for this reason, James gives this very strong rebuke. If you despise a poor man or treat someone differently because they're different from you, you behave like the ungodly rich person. Now, the reason why he uses this phrase, these ungodly rich people, is because the people that James is writing to would have understood exactly what that felt like. Because these rich and these influential people were treating Christians very badly. They were oppressing them. They were exploiting them. After all, money talks. Yet, ironically, they were no better. They were doing exactly the same thing to the poor people who were coming into their church. And if we really believe the doctrine of grace, you cannot even begin to entertain treating people differently. We must treat people based on the Word of God and on God's plan. And listen, Jesus' death broke down the walls between the rich and the poor, the young and the old, the, the educated and the uneducated. And listen, the comparisons could go on, but the grace of God means that you cannot, in fact, you must not rebuild these walls again. Look down your Bibles, verse 8, James 2, verse 8 to 13. James goes on, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. If you show favoritism, you sin and are 
convicted by the law as lawbreakers. But whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. And if you do, not, if you do commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anybody who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And James reaches back into the Old Testament for what he calls the royal law. It's also mentioned in the parable that Jesus tells about the Good Samaritan when Jesus explains who our neighbor really is. It's simply anybody who needs help. It's not geographical. It is where God gives opportunity. But why does James call this command to love your neighbor as yourself a royal law. Perhaps Matthew 22 verse 35 to 40 can help a little bit in this. So, if somebody comes to Jesus, in fact, one of them, an expert in the law, comes to Jesus, he wants to test Jesus, and he asks him the question, teacher, which is the greatest command of the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In very simple terms, kings make laws. Good kings make good laws, and Jesus is king. In fact, He is above every other king, and He is the ultimate authority, and subjects need to obey the laws, and a bad subject will break good laws. And the highest law that Jesus, the Creator King, has given to us in how we should treat one another begins, or at least flows out of the, the way in which we have a love for God with everything that we can have, but also it depends on how we treat one another. We love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And when we show favoritism, you break the law, and you sin against God and you are a lawbreaker. And I have to cringe, just even thinking back over the last maybe few months in the way in, I, in which I show favoritism. What about you? What about you? And Christian love means treating others the way that God has treated me. And the motive is to bring glory to God, and the means is by the power of the Holy Spirit from within. And importantly, this type of love does not leave a person where it finds them. Love always builds up. We heard last Sunday evening, if you were there when Jeremy came to speak, about speaking words of encouragement, about building his church up, about the gift of encouragement that's so important within the church and actually so neglected within churches. Love always builds up. Hatred tears down. But love, encouragement will build up. And the truth is that you, 
only really believe the parts of the Bible that you practice. So if you fail to obey the most important word to love your neighbor as you love yourself, you're going to struggle in so many other areas as well. But if we really understand the saving word of God, you will seek to forgive, and you won't even think about showing favoritism. After all, this is how God has treated you. However, if you break the law in just one of these areas, so even thinking that somebody is inferior to you because they're poor, because they're different, or for whatever other reason, you have broken all of it because you've chosen to condemn instead of love. And God's law is like a pane of glass. You break it in one place and you shatter the whole thing. So you think that because you haven't murdered or stolen or defrauded means that your lying or your envy or your favoritism doesn't really matter too much? Well, you are still guilty of, des of despising King Jesus by breaking His royal law. In fact, we should rightly expect a severe punishment for such a terrible act of rebellion. This is a royal law given by Christ, so to, to break it is to reject the good and the loving rule of King Jesus. In fact, James says that the problem here stems from not humbly accepting the Word of God, obeying it, and then applying it and living it out within our lives. See, none of us are above the Word of God. You don't know better than God. In fact, you don't even have the right to decide who you love and who you're not going to love. If you accept the Word humbly, that means doing what it says whatever it says, love your neighbor. Have a look around. Starts here. Doesn't end here. Starts here. Love your neighbor. Now, if we were to finish there, we would finish in a place of condemnation and hopelessness. Which one of us could stand? But that's not where James finishes. Instead, in verse 12, he talks about another law that will free you when you're judged by it. However, this cannot be a royal law because you and I have already broken it many times. Turn to Colossians 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And Jesus has dealt with your law breaking at the cross so that you can receive mercy and be forgiven. And this law of freedom points to your only hope, to Jesus. His mercy triumphs over the judgment that you deserve. Listen, He is the one who died your death, who suffered your punishment so that you, so that you can be judged by a perfect law of mercy instead of the law that you have already broken 
many, many times. To put it simply, King Jesus is your Savior. Listen, you are saved by His grace. In fact, you live by His grace, and you can be confident in the, in the cross of Christ because at the cross you will find complete assurance that anybody who comes to Jesus Christ, who puts their hope and their trust in Him, will never be judged for their sins. Why? Because those sins have already been dealt with. They were nailed to the cross when Jesus died. So it's not that you escape judgment, but that you are judged by a law that gives freedom. But this new law of grace that is established by Jesus Christ on the cross is a liberty, not a license. A license says, I can do whatever I want. I just carry on sinning. I'm going to do what pleases me. Do you really want to go down that route? Do you really want to carry on sinning? In fact, why would you want to go back into slavery, into what Christ has already taken you out of? It leads to the very worst kind of bondage. But actually, there's another thing that we can very easily do as well. We can go to the complete other other extreme and try to obey God by following just a set of rules. Listen, that leads to misery. It will never produce maturity. It may lead to a head knowledge, but it never will produce something that will live out in your life. It will never give you freedom. Like Jonah, remember Jonah in the Old Testament? Jonah had a wonderful theology of the mercy of God. He knew that God was gracious and slow to anger, abounding in mercy, but he hated people. He really hated, hated the people of Nineveh. He, he, he got so angry with God. That's not grace. That's not living out God's Word. However, if we allow God's Word to change your heart and to give you the desire to do God's will so that your obedience comes from the inward, Spirit-filled compulsion and love rather than from an outward constraint, you will grow in maturity And liberty and grace produces the freedom to be all that you can be in Christ. That's surely our hope, our prayer, to be everything that you can be in Christ comes through grace, comes through liberty. But also, grace does not remove your responsibility to obey important. It changes the motive behind your obedience. See, one day you will be answerable to God for all that you do. In fact, what you say and, and for, even for your attitudes, Jesus said that even your careless words will be judged. Matthew 12, 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. So, in James, um, James 2, 13, um, James contrasts these two attitudes those who show mercy and those who refuse to show mercy. And if you're merciful towards others, God will be merciful towards you. However, we must be careful we don't twist this truth into a lie. It doesn't mean that you can earn mercy by showing mercy. In fact, it's impossible to earn mercy. In the same way, it's impossible to earn grace. This is a gift given by God, poured into us by the Holy Spirit into our lives. Nor does it mean that we are soft on sin. 
doesn't mean that we ignore sin or even tolerate things that we should never tolerate. Instead, mercy and justice both come from God, and they do not compete with one another. But where God finds repentance and faith, He is able to show mercy. Where God finds rebellion and unbelief, He must administer justice, and God knows your heart. To put it another way, if you have truly received the mercy from the king, you will show it to others. And James, he established this link here. The heart that is willing to forgive and show mercy to a friend is the kind of heart that will respond in repentance towards God. Again, God sees your heart. He knows your heart. In fact, better than you know it yourself. The bottom line is this. What you believe will control how you behave. And if you really believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you believe that Jesus died in your place, that His grace has saved you from your sins, if you believe that God is gracious and that His Word is true, it will affect the way in which you behave. James says that the one of the best tests for the reality of your faith is how you treat one another. A genuine Christian is someone whose love of God is seen in an active desire to demonstrate love to everyone they meet. Is that me? Is that you? A genuine Christian is someone whose love of God is seen in an active desire to demonstrate love to everyone they meet. It means that we will constantly fight the temptation to judge others and you will accept that it's your responsibility to always be the one who responds first to the needs of others. It's taking time to open your heart to others, irrespective of that person's background, personality, or position. It's to live as Jesus lived. And this is challenging, because this affects every aspect of our lives, whether you're in work tomorrow, whether it's in an environment like this, whether it's in school, whether it's in our homes. Listen, this, this is where the rubber hits the road. This is reality. Is our love for Jesus something that we just mouth and talk and affirm, or is the reality of it in how we live, how we treat, how we care, how we love one another. There's no room in a Christian's heart for favoritism. There's no room if we truly believe in grace. Let's stand together. Father, again, we stand in your presence. And Lord, we acknowledge our failures in, in many areas. And Lord, I, I guess I can only speak for myself. But Lord, I pray, Lord, for your forgiveness. when I treat people differently, when I don't put your word into practice. 
So I pray, Holy Spirit, Lord, just reveal the truth of our hearts right now. Father, we would be open to you. Lord, sometimes with hard words, Lord, we need to have soft hearts to receive. I pray for that, Lord. But Lord, this is not about condemnation, Lord. Lord, because as we've said, Lord, not, none of us can stand in your presence except for Christ. So, Lord, we come to you, and we come back to the cross of Jesus, where forgiveness has come from, where your blood is enough, where we find hope. And, Father, we pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, come and fill us. Come and fill us afresh. Lord, equip us. Father, may we love one another. May we be known for that. Lord, may we take it from here, Lord, and affect our neighborhood. Lord, affect every place that we go with your love. May we demonstrate it. May we put feet and legs on it, Lord, and may we take it, Lord God, and make it something that changes our community. But Lord, we need, we need your help in this. Lord, we need each other in this, Lord. So, Lord, we rely on you. Lord, I pray, Lord, just have your way among us. I pray that in your precious name, Lord. Amen. Amen.